Welcome to Financial Crime Matters with Kieran Beer. I'm Kieran Beer, Chief Analyst and Director of Editorial Content for ACAMS, the world's largest membership organization for anti-financial crime professionals. In this episode of Financial Crime Matters, I talk with Jackie Shinfield, partner at Blake's Castle and Graydon, about anti-money laundering and anti-financial crime legislation and regulation in Canada in the wake of a number of changes and just ahead of the ACAMS annual Canada Conference on November 3rd and 4th. Among other things, Jackie and I talk about new initiatives from Finance Canada, FinTrack's new cost recovery plan, technological gaps for implementing new electronic fund transfer reporting, and the Cullen Commission. I hope you enjoy the podcast and will subscribe to the series either on Apple Podcasts, Amazon, Spotify, or SoundCloud. Here we go. It is a real pleasure for me to have Jacqueline Shinfield with me here this morning. She's a partner in the Financial Services Group at Blake Castles and Graydon LLP. We're going to talk about all things Canada, all things around the regulatory environment there now. And I just want to start out by saying thank you, Jackie, and by saying I don't want to offend anybody else out there, but I can think of no one more knowledgeable or who speaks with more authority on these issues than you. And thank you for being here. Oh, thank you so much for your kind words. Happy to be here. So Jackie, I was kind of thinking about taking this down in a kind of a quick survey of what's going on out there and bringing people up to speed. Maybe we could talk first about Budget 2021. It contains a lot of provisions that are going to have impact on the PCMLFTA, the Proceeds of Crime, Money Laundering Act. Maybe we could talk a little about that, including this provision that FinTrack will now recover its costs from regulated entities, I guess. What will that look like? So, I mean, we don't know exactly what it's going to look like, but we do have some precedent for that that we can conjure and get a really good idea. So under the federal regime for banks and other federally regulated institutions, on the consumer protection side, they're regulated by the Financial Consumer Agency of Canada, the FCAC. And there's actually a provision in their statute where every year they determine what their costs and expenses are. And then they take every institution which they regulate and they look at their asset value. And based on that, they implement a formula and then different institutions pick up different portions of the FCAC's expenses based on this formula. So given that that's a precedent in the federal regime, I would assume that the proceeds of crime will look similar, where every year FinTrack will come out with its costs and expenses, and then regulated entities based on their asset value will have a certain formula to plug into, and whenever that number comes out, they'll owe that amount to FinTrack uh, to help fund it. I think it's going to look something like that, likely going to be based on asset value, potentially transaction value. And I only say that because one of the requirements when you register with FinTrack as an MSB by way of example is to put in your transaction value, but that's just for MSBs and not for others. So it's likely going to be based on asset value and there'll be an apportionment based on the size of the institutions. We assume it's going to be a fairly incidental cost, an onerous cost, probably not. Any sense of that? You know, hard to know what their costs are. I wouldn't think it would be terribly onerous, uh, but, you know, famous last words. This will at least help FinTrack fund itself so it's able to continue to monitor and do what it needs to do from a regulatory perspective because it has been criticized for sort of having a bit of a soft touch. So this will at least give them some funds to cover what they're doing. So the budget also contains money, uh, $2.1 million over two years to launch an accessible public beneficial ownership registry. And I think the dates by 2025 doesn't seem like enough money, obviously seed money. What is it supposed to do? And do we know what the registry might look like yet? 
So it's an interesting question. You know, the interesting thing is a federal registry can deal with companies that are federally incorporated. But in Canada, you can be incorporated federally under the Canada Business Corporations Act, we call it the CBCA, or under any provincial act. So this is going to be likely just limited to the CBCA companies because they're the only corps under federal regime. And we don't quite know what it's going to look like. We have a pretty good idea. I guess one of the questions will be, what will that beneficial ownership percentage be? Will it be 10% or will it be 25% as in the proceeds of crime? Will it be publicly accessible and available to all or will it only be available to certain defined parties? So I know there's consultations going on now. I've seen some drafts, but really until it's finalized, it's hard to know exactly what it'll look like. But it's really meant to provide much more transparency into Canadian corporations so that you can see who the beneficial owners are and trace it down to the individual level at either a 10 or 25 percent level. So that's interesting. And I know some of this is, and I may say a little bit more about that later if we've got time, but this meets some of the criticism from FATF about Canada and corporate ownership transparency. But you've said there's a big hole there, isn't there? Because in Canada, most of the corporate formation takes place on the provincial level, right? It's split. So not everyone is a corporation incorporated in Manitoba, but there clearly are some. So if you're a corporation and you don't carry on business on a national basis and you just stay in your province, you wouldn't necessarily incorporate it as a CBCA company. So this is really meant for CBCA companies, as far as I understand. I will say that under Canadian corporate legislation for all provinces, the finance ministers agreed years ago that they would all implement a legislation that required under corporate statutes for each entity to have a required mandatory document that listed who the significant owners were, and that was a 25% level. So just like your official corporate documents include your articles, your bylaws, a list of your shareholders, and a list of your directors, corporate statutes in Canada are moving towards having a requirement to have your people with significant interests. And those amendments haven't already been made to both the CBCA, British Columbia legislation. They're coming to Ontario. It's not a public registry, but there's a, an official corporate document that does have some disclosure of who holds significant interest. And if you were a bank or another institution that was advancing funds or entering into a financial relationship with an entity, you would be able to ask for that as one of the documents. So that is somewhat helpful, but it isn't a public registry, if you will. Well, here's one of the areas that I'm going to really count on your expertise to make this clear. And I think it's kind of complicated and a little bit confusing. I want to talk for a minute about some of the latest regulations from FinTrack. I think these are things that went into effect June 2021. You can correct me if I don't have that quite right. Particularly this new measure with regard to reporting electronic fund transfers that make the final recipient now responsible for reporting. Anyway, this seems like very confusing to me and a little bit of a mess. Is there a way to make that clear? What is at stake? And say what you can't make clear because I think some of it's undecided still or some of it is up in the air. So I think the law is fairly clear. It's just that, to be honest, in Canada, we don't have the systems to reflect the law. And so we've always had EFT reporting for $10,000 or more cross-border. We continue to have EFT reporting for $10,000 or more cross-border. Uh, the issue now becomes who does the reporting? So under the previous regime, the reporting was done if it was an outgoing EFT by the last entity that touched it before it left the country. And on an incoming EFT, it was reported by the first entity that touched it when it came into Canada. And so if you had a, an EFT that came in on a cross-border basis 
and it touched a bank first and before it went to a recipient at another bank by way of example it hit the first bank the first bank would have full visibility into that transaction they would report it as an EFT cross border that it came across the border into bank A and it was going to beneficiary Jackie Shinfield at bank B and they would have full visibility but for some reason fintrack changed who reports and so the reporting now still is required for 10,000 EFTs, but it's the reporting requirement on the incoming side is the person who has to pay the beneficiary. So in my example, when the money comes in and crosses the border and hits bank A, bank A no longer reports it. They send it off to bank B, and because bank B is my bank and they have to pay me, bank B has to report it. The problem is that sometimes when bank A will get that wire transfer, unless it's sent by SWIFT, when they send it to bank B, it's sent through the Canadian ACH system. And because it's sent through the Canadian ACH system, at this particular point in time, as we modernize our system, which we're doing, we're modernizing our payment system, the message capability does not have the ability to include that that was a cross-border transfer. So receiving bank B will not know actually that it has to report that I received a cross-border EFT because on its books, it will look like I just received an EFT from Bank A in Canada. And so this is causing a lot of confusion and a lot of consternation. There's a lot of industry consultation going on. And FinTrack has actually published some guidance on this. It's talked about some of the institutions in the example I just gave you, Bank A, they're actually continuing to report anyway because they want that information to go to FinTrack. And so FinTrack's saying, hey, you're actually over-reporting, so we expect you to file a voluntary disclosure and then pull those reports off. And then for bank B's, it's saying, we know you're not reporting. We want you to try to keep the appropriate records, fix your system so you're able to report by the end of the year. So it's really confusing. And, and that's partially because, you know, the travel rule is supposed to make all the information follow the transfer. And the, the problem is on the Canadian system, we're not quite technologically or systematically there yet to include the information. What's even more confusing is that under the new regime, not only does the parties who report change, but the EFT reporting forms change and how you aggregate transactions change. So the $10,000 rule is defined as $10,000 sent in a quote unquote single transaction, which is kind of a 24 hour clock. So FinTrack has said, okay, we know you have to change who reports, but the old forms in the old act we're still using. We're not going to be using the new forms till 2024. Oh, and by the way, because we're not using the new forms, keep aggregating the way you did under the old regime. So we're continuing to aggregate as we did under the old regime. We're continuing to use the reports under the old regime, but they've changed who reports. And so it's incredibly confusing. People are struggling with how to comply. I know the industry is working with FinTrack now to try to come up with a solution to make this work until the new forms are done and our payment system is updated, which it's in the process of doing. We're just so close, but we're not quite there. So this is a really difficult area and hard to give good guidance other than do what you can and file voluntary disclosures. And so I think in some ways you've addressed this question, but I guess I'm wanting to give our audience some free legal advice from you. What are you telling clients to do in the meantime. It sounds like the reporting is still happening foreign EFT with bank A, the first bank that it hits, but there's problems with that. Anyway, what are you telling clients to do in general about this? So to comply to the extent that you can, if you have the information file, but just make sure that you go to FinTrack and you file a voluntary self-disclosure of non-compliance and say, hey, we're having these system issues and this is what we're working through and this is our timeline to get this done. And like I said, I mean, that's what FinTrack has asked us to do that. So that's what we're going to do. Uh, but this is being worked on as an industry issue. So hopefully we will have some clarity and somewhat of a solution by the end of the year. 
Let's talk for a minute about cryptocurrency. There are some new requirements for cryptocurrency, although I'm not sure that some of them didn't even predate to 2020. You can sort that out for me a little bit. But then also, who regulates cryptocurrency? FinTrack to some degree, also a new push by the securities regulators. Tell me a little bit about that. Crypto has been an interesting issue. You know, in the past, before amendments to the legislation, if you were dealing with someone who was, you know, moving crypto and you reached out to FinTrack and asked if you were subject to the act, FinTrack would say, no, you're not a money service business because a money service business is defined as someone who remits or transmits funds and funds is defined as like legal tender. And so virtual currency is not legal tender and therefore the act doesn't apply. So this was seen as a big hole. At the same time, there was always some uncertainty from securities regulators as to whether Bitcoin or other virtual currencies were securities. There is U.S. guidance that was basically looked at here, and we sort of thought, no, these things really aren't securities. And so people kind of chugged along and did what they needed to do. And then FinTrack made amendments to the act to capture MSBs as a category of dealing in virtual currency. So in 2020, if you were an MSB and you were, quote unquote, dealing in virtual currency, you actually had to register with FinTrack. And then in 2021, all the requirements other than reporting STRs, which already applied, applied. So now if you're dealing in virtual currency, which means transferring or exchanging virtual currency, you have to file reports. If you receive $10,000 or more, you have to keep records. If you move a thousand or more, the travel rule actually applies to virtual currency transfers of over a thousand dollars. Obviously you have to file suspicious transaction reports. If you're doing exchanges from cash to virtual currency or virtual currency to virtual currency, you have to keep certain records. So it's basically full on compliance, um, effectiveness reviews every two years, everything else that applies to clients of other regulated entities applies in the virtual currency sector. At the same time, leaving aside anti-money laundering is really um, legislation that's designed to stop people from laundering funds and you know using proceeds of crime through our financial institutions in Canada. Securities regulation is a little bit different because securities regulation goes a little bit more to safety and soundness and safeguarding people's investments. And so if you think about all this different sort of scandals that have happened in Canada over the years where people have invested money in cryptocurrency exchanges, you know, Quadriga is the most obvious one, and then you know, their money virtually disappears overnight, it's not surprising that securities regulators have decided to become involved. So in the past, they've always had statements that say, well, we're not sure, we don't know. But I think in March of this year, they basically came out with guidance and said that if you're operating crypto asset trading platform, or if you're custodying any virtual currency, which is important, they think that you are a securities dealer and you have to be registered with appropriate securities dealers in the province. And they've actually started enforcement proceedings. And they basically, in March, said to everyone, look, you guys are securities dealers. If you don't want to be punished, come to us and talk to us. And so everyone's you know, filed these applications with the OSC in Ontario saying, hey, we want to talk to you about what we're doing. And the OSC is going through each one separately. It's taking a long time and telling people what they can or what they can't do or giving them some type of interim relief. But they've made it really clear that if you haven't come to them and said, we're doing this, that they're going to come after you. And they've come after three different companies. So now there's going to be regulation from an AML perspective, as well as regulation from a safety and soundness perspective by the securities regulators. It was pretty easy to come into tiptoe into Canada and deal in virtual currency. There wasn't a lot of registering as an MSB is like an hour work. You know, you have to implement a compliance framework. There's a lot of work there. But to basically come here and get up and running as a business wasn't difficult. Now it's going to take much more time and much more money because you have to get the security approvals. It was kind of wild there for a while. I don't know if I'm supposed to editorialize like that. And now I guess there's two regulators and not just one. So interesting. 
So there's this whole thing with the SDR filing process. This term, as quickly as practicable, there's a new urgency attached to filings, aren't there, under the, the regulations? Yeah, so it used to always be that you had to file within 30 days of detecting a fact that gave grounds to reasonable grounds to believe that something was suspicious. Canada was criticized by FATF because the FATF standard is promptly, and they felt that 30 days was not promptly. And so when the first version of these regulations were released in, I think, 2018, it was a three-day period. You know, a lot of institutions said three days, it's too difficult. And so where we ended up with as soon as practicable. And so what does that mean? Well, FinTrack has guidance that says, look, this is what we expect you to do. We expect you to screen and identify for suspicious transactions. We expect you to look at the facts and context surrounding these types of transactions. We expect you to look at the facts and context and look at the leading indicators, look at your sort of red flags for suspicious transactions and put them all together. And once you've done that and you've put them all together and you have completed these measures, at that point, you have reasonable grounds to suspect. And at that point, they expect an STR filing to be given huge priority. So they understand that you can't say immediately necessarily there's a suspicious transaction, but once you do your homework and you link everything and you make the determination that there's reasonable grounds to suspect, at that point you have to file. That's a priority. It's immediately. And in keeping with that, one of the things that FinTrack's been giving a lot of guidance on is a distinction between reasonable grounds to suspect and reasonable grounds to believe. And reasonable grounds to believe is a higher standard than reasonable grounds to suspect. So they've made it clear that reasonable grounds to suspect is just a little bit above simple suspicion, but reasonable grounds to believe is a much stronger standard. And that's not the standard required to file an STR. And so because of that, they've said if on its face, it's automatically, you have reasonable grounds to believe. So you've already exceeded the reasonable grounds to suspect threshold, then notwithstanding everything, file immediately. So there's a new priority and urgency on filing STRs as soon as practicable. There is an underlying understanding that sometimes it takes you a bit of time to get the grounds and put your arguments together and understand why it's suspicious. But in circumstances where it's on its face, it's like 100% suspicious, there's no issues, they expect a filing right away. Let me ask you a little bit about examinations and what you're hearing out there in terms of what FinTrack is expecting. I know there were remote examinations during much of COVID-19. I don't know how much examinations are taking place on premise now, but are there some quick cautionary tales when we think about FinTrack that you can share or just even reassurances that you can share about how examinations are going? So from my experience, and examinations are ongoing and because they're not in person, they're going on longer. Meaning you give FinTrack all your documents, they get on a call, they have questions, they go away, they come back, they have questions, they go away, they come back, they have questions. Usually when you do in-person um, examinations, they come and you have your examination and you're done and there may be a question or two. But my understanding is these are really dragging on a lot. Their focus is on everything, but unequivocally on filing STRs. They want to look at any unusual transaction reports that you identified that you didn't file, they're going to want to look at those. They're going to want to look at your processes once you identify something. How is it escalated? Who is it escalated to? What is the timeline? Who makes the decision? They're going to actually, as part of their examinations, come in and Google your clients. So if you have an unusual transaction report that you've decided Jackie Shinfield did these five things, but you know what? She's a lawyer. We've never had issues with her. This is, you know, usual. And then they go and Google me and they find out that I'm potentially involved in some ring of some type of criminal organization. They'll say, Jackie was in the paper and you didn't file. So huge focus on adverse media and how regulated entities are using adverse media. 
and huge focus on production orders. That's not new, but I'm seeing that all the time. So basically, when you have clients that are engaging in any kind of unusual activity or there's any adverse media or production orders, there's an expectation to file. And I know that FinTrack's gonna say, no, it's reasonable grounds to suspect, but as a practitioner who's watching this, when in doubt, file because that's the standard and they're looking, they're coming into your house and turning everything upside down to find files and little gems where you didn't file and to Google clients and say, oh, look, this person was on the paper, you didn't file. So it basically almost turns regulated entities into sort of investigators. And you have to really like know your client takes on a huge meaning. And I know there's nothing in the law that talks about adverse media or even having to look at adverse media. But, you know, obviously sophisticated institutions have adverse media and they expect you to regulate it and monitor it. So that's a big thing I'm seeing. A couple other things I'm seeing, high-risk clients. I really want to make sure that you're examining high-risk clients when you say you will. So if your policies and procedures say we examine high-risk clients every year and you do it every year and a half, they're going to come after you for that. If you do other things, that, you know, if you have these great policies and procedures, but you don't follow them, they're going to come after you for that. And then I'm seeing a lot of dings on effectiveness reviews. So every two years, you have to do an effectiveness review of your program. They're looking at the types of instructions you're giving to your auditor. And are you telling them to examine all your reports, all your record keeping, all your trainings? They expect that review to be completely fulsome. And if you don't give proper instructions to your auditor, they will come after you for that as well. So those are kinds of the things I would say I'm seeing in reports. But again, far and above anything, real focus on STRs and missing STRs. So I know this isn't, you know, something that you are have had directly a hand in or anything. Uh, at least I don't think so. Uh, but I think the country is watching a little bit, the Cullen Commission and its process. And I just wondered, Maybe you could tell us a little bit about how you expect this to unfold, if anything that you know about it, and if there's anything that stands out from the hearings, particularly from your point of view. Yeah, so the Cullen Commission is really interesting. And actually, I think next week, the final oral submissions are being made with different participants that have standing in that. And so, you know, the standing parties with standing include Transparency International, the BC Civil Liberties Association, uh, the British Columbia government, the government of Canada, the British Columbia Real Estate Association, BC Lotto Corp. There's a lot. You know, the investigation was based on the reports about the Vancouver model and all the money laundering going on in, in Vancouver and British Columbia, uh, targeting casinos, real estate sectors. Uh, you know, they looked at financial institutions. They had so many people testify. I would say if anyone is really interested in learning about money laundering, ways to money launder, trade, finance, money laundering, there are so many incredible papers, affidavits, and materials filed with the commission that are available online that it makes for great reading if you're an AML geek. So I would say that. There's supposed to be a report at the end of the year, and there's supposed to be recommendations as what British Columbia can do to assist it in its combating money laundering. So, you know, I don't know if there'll be duplicative legislation. I don't know. There was some talk earlier about having a separate money system, money services business registry. The real estate industry is already subject to AML, you know, perhaps luxury car dealers will get thrown into some sort of AML pile from a BC perspective. It's really hard to know what they'll do. Are things surprising? There was some surprising information from different parties. I'm not going to comment on anyone particular, but I would say that if someone goes online and reads the different materials, there's really interesting things and there's really knowledgeable people that testified. And we'll see what the BC government recommends. 
that's sort of where we're going to be. What are they going to do to add to combat money laundering? And, and all I can say is, while I'm certainly in favor of combating money laundering, I just hope from a practical and a regulatory perspective that we don't have duplicative legislation so that we have yet another layer of regulation in another province. Well, we're coming to a close. Time is just about out here. And I just thought, I'd, uh, you know, we're a couple of weeks out from the Canada Conference, our annual Canada Conference that I know you're going to moderate a couple panels. That's the 3rd and the 4th of November. So tell me a little bit about some of the things. Um, I know you're starting to plan panels and anything. What do you think are going to be some of the topics that we could look forward to hearing on the panels that you're doing? Actually, one of my panels is about British Columbia uh, and, you know, what is happening there, what we can do, what's working and what isn't, you know, talking about private public partnerships, which has been successful in Canada. So that's going to be a really interesting panel. And then the effects of COVID, you know, COVID has been a really good case study in AML. And what I mean by that is when you look at what's happened and how people who launder money have to pivot to different methods when, you know, for example, the use of cash has really declined during COVID, right? people aren't meeting, people aren't going into banks. And so you see a lot more fraud through EFT, by way of example. And so the different methods of fraud, you know, frauds for personal protection equipment at the beginning, you know, just how, you know, the world pivots to what's available and to the different fraud methods that are available given the rise of COVID. So that is really interesting. And, you know, FATF was really good. They came out really quickly with panels, guidance, seminars on like, these are the things we're seeing. And when you looked at what FATF came out with, and obviously FATF is a global organization, but you were finding the same kind of fraud and issues globally everywhere. So, you know, criminals are really quick to the pump, as we used to say in Winnipeg, when you would go get gas, jump to the pump. They're really quick to the pump to be innovative and pivot and find ways to launder funds. So um, COVID's been a good test of that, but there'll be other ways and other things. And, you know, that's where we always have to stay on top of things because methods and trends are always changing depending on technology and where we are in the world and what is happening. Well, Jacqueline Shinfield, thank you so much, uh, partner at Blake Castles and Graydon. And I want to say, I think that on all these issues, you are quick to the pump, something I had never heard before. And uh, thank you for <laughs> thank you for sharing that. Thank you for being here. Okay, no worries. Thanks for having me. Take care. Thanks for listening to my conversation with Jacqueline Shinfield, partner in the financial services group at Blake Castles and Graydon. I hope you found what you heard compelling and will subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or SoundCloud so that you'll receive an alert for each new podcast. Because financial crime matters to me and to you. See you next time.